Welcome to True Nature Radio, an exploration of how ancient wisdom can help us to become our most healthy and authentic self. I'm Lori Regan. And I am Heiner Fruhoff. Today's question is, as above, so below. Are we a direct reflection of the universe? We discuss the theory at the heart of most ancient medical traditions. Humans are an inextricable part of the web of life. And health occurs when there is a harmonious relationship, or you could say a resonance, between the patterns within and the patterns in the greater cycles of nature. Last week we discussed with Dr. Avi Herskovitz why modern medicine alone isn't sufficient to resolve our major health issues, that it can be actually much more effective when it's combined and complemented and used together with ancient knowledge and wisdom. So today, Heiner, you're going to give us a peek into the results of a decade-long research project you've conducted at the National College of Natural Medicine. You're the founder of the School of Classical Chinese Medicine at the National College of Natural Medicine, and as such, have been at the forefront of an international movement to bring ancient wisdom back, back that has been in the past lost, or progressively lost over time. Can you tell us about the ancient medical principles that you believe can revolutionize modern healthcare? I am a professor of classical Chinese medicine, but what I love about uh, being alive at this time is that we have access to so much information and that as human beings we can see our similarities more rather than our differences. And so for me, Chinese medicine is nothing but a doorway to ancient medical systems and observations of nature that all ancient people had in common, whether it was uh, Ayurvedic medicine in India, uh, systems of medicine in Egypt, uh, what the Mayans had, what the Sumerians had, etc. And you're absolutely right to ask about the time frame because uh, particularly in our country we think a hundred years is a long time ago, but what we are talking about is the formative period of medical thought, uh, which of course has existed as long as there are human beings been walking on the planet, but when these thoughts were written down. So somewhere between 2,000 years in China probably and uh, even earlier in India and Egypt, for instance. Your research has shown that there's a unifying theory common to these different traditions. Can you put in a nutshell for us the essence of how ancient people viewed life, really, and how they viewed the place of human beings in the natural world? I really love that quote, as above, so below, uh, which is actually not a quote from an Eastern text, but uh, is from the so-called Emerald Tablets, which is a text from the so-called Hermetic tradition, uh, Gnostic tradition that originated in Egypt and then informed Greek thinkers uh, and really is sort of underpinning of holistic thought in, in the Western world because that quote is summarizes what we are about to talk about here today, namely, how are we as human beings part of the web of life? How is healthcare something where you cannot just treat separate parts of the human being but see how the heart and the liver and the kidney are related, but much more importantly, how we as humans 
are part of a greater whole, of a family, of society, of the pulsing rhythm of the earth, and then the universe at large. I very often use the term alchemy to, to describe the system. Alchemy is, of course, an idea where we think of old men sitting in caves during the Middle Ages or even longer before in China and elsewhere, smelting metals together. But what the real smelting process is, is the interpenetration and the co-resonating of our microcosm, the human being, our functions in our body with the harmony of the spheres, as Pythagoras put it in our own cultural sphere, uh, more than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece. And the Chinese and the Egyptians and the Indians especially were masters at describing how we are resonating in synchronicity with those larger spheres and how that brings happiness and health. So this is quite a bit different from what we learn about in most of our science classes today. Can you explain the difference, the major differences between the modern scientific view and how that lies at the, the foundation of modern medicine and this more ancient model of reality and how it led to a certain different kind of approach to medicine? How I understand it as a originally a humanities major is that science is really a methodology to get rid of um, things that are not predictably. Therefore, in the laboratory, you have a completely controlled environment, and you can reproduce results you have in Boston, in uh, Cairo or uh, Mumbai, etc. And in order to do that, you need to reduce reality down to matter, to the biochemistry, to the, the sticks and table reality, to use the words of a quantum physicist that, uh, to describe this layer of reality. So everything we touch, and as modern people, we've been somewhat brainwashed into this view of reality. Everything we can touch is real. Everything that we cannot is uh, maybe the realm of philosophy or religion. And to ancient people, that wasn't so at all. To ancient people, there was a realm of consciousness, a realm of energy, and then a realm of how that invisible energetic world is manifesting itself in physical form. And uh, not only are these realms coexisting, but it is actually the realm of the subtle is informing and therefore is hierarchically higher, uh, is the seed level, is the relationship of heaven to earth. First there is heaven, then there is earth. First there is non-matter, then there is matter. That is how ancient people looked at that, and of course, modern physics looks at it the same way. I think we can do a calculation that our reality is, even though we perceive of it as all matter, it is 99.999% of our universe is non-matter. And so to ancient people, the exploration of this seed layer, let's call it like that, that subtle, invisible seed layer, that which seems least important to a modern person was most important in ancient times. 
Does this relate to the discussion we had last week where Avi was saying that in modern medicine, the symptom is viewed as a mistake in the material realm. It's viewed as a problem, something we have to get rid of, and we have a tendency to use a physical drug to change the biochemistry to get rid of the symptom. We, we talked about symptoms from an ancient view as being what tells us how to approach, how to regain balance maybe, how to regain health, that the physical symptom is actually something that shows us about what's out of balance in this energetic or informational realm. Is that right? That is a very important point here because the obvious question is how do you, as a physician especially, how do you diagnose that realm? How do you perceive this realm? And uh, while there's an entire agnostic science of going into a snow cave and meditating and breathing and purifying your heart and your existence so you have the direct access to the harmony of the spheres and and uh, these uh, that the, the heavenly realm so to speak that lives inside of us from an ancient gnostic um, perspective but the real science of the ancient approach which is reproducible in modern times and a reasonable amount of time, is what I call the science of symbols. And that means you use matter or the pictures and images that matter represents to point at a deeper at that deeper layer of reality. How is a flower shaped? What color does it have? What smell does it ha- have? What does it taste like? Is it sweet? Is it sour? Is it pungent? Those are all pointers toward what kind of energy and even consciousness resides in that plant. And coming back to the question you just asked, while in modern medicine, and that includes very often modern forms of natural medicine, the symptom is thought of as a nuisance and you need to suppress it or you need to treat the symptom when really from a truly holistic perspective the symptom is nothing but a sign it is a pointer it is a it's the intelligence of your body that is manifesting in a very clear way at the surface of your body a rash or a pain or uh, changes in urination or bowel movements etc and the quality of that rash, is it red, is it, is it pale, is it itchy, is it uh, stabbingly painful, etc. They all point toward the quality of the energy. So as a homeopath and especially a classical Chinese medicine practitioner, you're very interested in the symptoms, but not to then treat the symptom, but to get a picture that allows you to read and make an assessment about the underlying energy and consciousness of the disease, which really from an ancient perspective, that is the root of the disease. We always talk in holistic medicine about treat the root, uh, but then we often fail to explain what that is. So from this perspective, the root is in the non-matter component, uh, is in the energetics of the body, is in the consciousness of the cell, rather than in the physical Form. So, Heiner, what you're talking about is the root of the disease being in this non-material realm. How in ancient medicine, 
did the practitioners learn how to read this invisible layer in order to diagnose what's going on with the patient? As I just mentioned, there is uh, the science of the direct path, which is basically the cultivation of the self. Cultivation of the body, cultivation of the mind, cultivation of the heart. So it was expected of, uh, in Chinese, that is called xing ming shuang xiu, which means you have to, through the breath, through movements, through diet, you refine every cell in your body so that the purity of your intentions is able to then co-resonate with the vibrations of the universe itself, of the macrocosm, so that literally you are thinking the thoughts of the universe. And while this seems like a strange concept to us, when we read as a historian of ancient medicines, uh, every biography of a famous master in the past shows us that those people were basically clairvoyant. For instance, Zhang Zhongjing, a great master from 1800 years ago, wrote the first text about uh, herbal remedies. There's a famous story about him in a biography of a prince where uh, that prince was approached by Zhang Zhongjing and said, you are ill. And he was at the height of his health and said, I don't think so. And he said, here is a medicine that you should be taking because otherwise in 20 years your eyebrows will fall out and six months later you will be dead. And a week later he ran into the prince again and could see from in modern times I suppose you would say his aura or so that that hadn't changed, that his base vibration hadn't changed and that uh, um, disease vibration was still there. And as a result, uh, and, and he lied and he said, yeah, I've taken it. And uh, Zhang Zhongjing was polite and said, keep taking it because otherwise disaster will strike. And he, of course, didn't because at that time he was thinking, this is this quack, countryside quack, I'm the prince, what does he know? And then 20 years later, his eyebrows indeed fell out. And at that time, he'd already lost that medicine and couldn't find Zhang Zhongjing again. And then six months later, he was dead. So how did the ancient people, how were they taught these methods? It seems like a magical quality or, or a really unattainable quality to be able to see somebody and know that 20 years in the future their eyebrows are going to fall out. How did they learn these incredible diagnostic skills? The most important thing about ancient instruction of medicine was not just the content that we just talked about, the microcosm-macrocosm relationship, and uh, the the science of cultivation and the science of observ- learning how to observe nature, the laws of nature, and then how to read the science of nature and the science of symbols, but was how it was transmitted. Uh, this is the the educational science of transmission was very important. Uh, that you needed the heart of the teacher needed to connect with the heart of the student, and at the same time be connected to the heart of the universe to use ancient language here here at the same time so that there was a transmission that uses the teacher as a uh, megaphone, so so speak, to broadcast to the initiate who doesn't see yet, to be able to be a guide. And so the cultivation of a bond between teacher and disciple was very important. Very often you would live at the teacher's house 
starting when you were very young. And then secondly, you would utilize nature. Uh, very often teaching would happen in nature because when you were by a waterfall, when you were out in the sun, when you were sitting in the shade of a big tree, when you were touching the plant that you were learning about, it, there was is not one second of boredom, which is so different from modern institutionalized learning where, as you know, our students, uh, even at the very institute that we created ourselves, <laughs> is less than ideal because our students are glued eight hours, sometimes ten hours to a chair, barely have time to uh, have lunch and constantly being quizzed. And a lot of the, there's a lot of stress about the next quiz, etc. Uh, whereas in ancient times, it was the creation of joyful learning was very important. So you absorb information with every pore, with every cell. And as a result of it, you're not forgetting it when it really counts. It wasn't about some quiz or satisfying the master. It was about being able to recall that information when it really counts when you're sitting in front of the patient. A third element there is the importance of the classics, which is uh, in modern times, our so-called classics are, for instance, the Merck manual or so, which gets updated every year or so, and then you throw your old edition out, whereas in ancient times the classics were revered as transmissions by truly enlightened people. And through memorizing the classics, reading the classics again and again, they were like your teacher, a transmission tool that you could use as an intermediary step, as a crutch to co-resonate with the heart of the universe itself. So my understanding, Heiner, is that the Chinese classics, because they're written in a pictographic language, there's something about the need to read those classics over and over and over because each character is actually a symbol, a symbol that has endless depth. Can you talk about the process of actually learning from those classical texts? A lot of research has been done about the damage that has been done to our way of thinking um, by using a linear, by linearizing our thought patterns by using, for instance, the alphabet, which is used to be symbolic at some point. Uh, even the letters of the alphabet are originally gestalt patterns of movements, but they don't mean that at all to us anymore. Uh, the Chinese language and the pictographs of the Sumerians and the Egyptians especially are images that are conducive to holistic thought. When you do calligraphy and you go into the stroke patterns, you have a circular way of thinking which uh, ties you in more to the holistic uh, way of thinking. However, I always get that asked when I lecture about the importance of the classics and how beneficial it is. Uh, and I greatly enjoy reading the Chinese classics in their original. Um, that that door is closed for most of us today since I happened by accident to study Sinology first. But I always remind people that the classic themselves are not an end-all. They are outpicturings of the language of nature itself, to a commentary on the symbols and signs of nature itself. So in modern times, the real classic, I tell my students, read nature. 
read the bodies of your patients and understand the pictorial images that they give to you. So there's hope for us in modern times that we can actually develop these skills to be able to use them in our own lives and if we're practitioners, to use them to really benefit our patients. Not only hope, but there is a magnificent skill level uh, in this country particularly about being able to read the body directly uh, due to the um, materialist orientation that the Chinese have chosen during the last 50 years or so. And despite the fact that there are more than 600 million uh, licensed practitioners is really the second largest healthcare system in the world. Uh, I would say that right now, some of the better practitioners can actually be found in the West, despite their inability to access these classics, because they are they are actually doing meditation, they are doing qigong, they are doing tai chi, they are cultivating themselves, which is in the modernizing stream of modernization that modern China is on right now is, is not the in thing to do. So yes, there's absolutely there is hope. So you brought up a point in there, a really important point, that there are very specific ways that instead of living in it, we don't have to go live in a snow cave, that there are things like meditation, qigong. Maybe you want to explain that a little bit more. Maybe some of our listeners aren't familiar with that term. Probably more people are, are familiar with taiji. But the, can you talk a little bit about these ways that people these days can cultivate themselves? Yeah, another benefit of the 21st century is that we are having teachers of these uh, what used to be extremely esoteric arts that people actually died for just to be uh, you know, get a chance at uh, being instructed, um, that we have these available in most cities in the United States and, and Europe. Um, very dedicated people who teach yoga, for instance, or teach qigong, which means uh, energy work, or tai chi quan, which is a, a subcategory of qigong. Um, those are basically awareness techniques, basically teaching us to how to be present in our bodies and have, an again, an alchemical unity of us with the universe but starting on a very physical plane. What is my posture? What is my breath pattern? Uh, and these uh, movement, uh, conscious movement patterns and conscious breath patterns, and then furthermore conscious thought patterns, visualization techniques, working with sound, those are all methodologies that can be learned with yoga and qigong and meditation, but also with Western uh, things that we had for a long time in a certain way. For instance, originally a religious service where you were, for instance, in the cathedral of Chartres and you have the smell of the incense. You have the light from outside cascading through magnificently crafted color windows and the sound of the organ, and the harmony of the voices in the choir, and the power spot that you are located on where the cathedral was built, and this incredible craftsmanship of building uh, the church, all of that will transport you within the short space of an hour into a completely different state where you are resonating 
with that harmony of the spheres. That's beautiful. And presumably it takes time to get to that level where you have cultivated your awareness to be able to see directly what's going on with the patient. Is there anything that can be done in the meantime that still allows us to access this invisible layer? What can we do? Like presumably we get out of school, if we're trained as a practitioner, we need to start paying back those loans right away. Um, Do we just find a way, another job that lets us sit in a cave or do these cultivation practices for the next 10, 20 years? Or is there, is there some way to still access this deeper layer of information? It is all about the exploring the incredible benefits uh, that the ancient masters have presented to us, not just with the direct path of cultivation, but with they've really given us a map of how to not just that the universe and we are connected, but how it is connected. And I remember when I was a novice and entered into uh, the study chamber of a, one of the last remaining uh, teachers. Uh, he was in his 80s at the time um, at uh, Chengdu University of Traditional Chinese Medicine. And uh, I was privileged to spend an evening with him. And he was reading a book and I said, what are you reading about? And he stunned me with this answer by saying, I'm reading about yin and yang. That is sort of the most basic concept uh, that you have in Chinese medicine that I had long, even at that point, checked off. And so what is yin and yang is, again, is a life, what he was trying to tell me, there is a lifelong way of cultivating yourself And you get as far as you can. That is what the Chinese call the Tao, the path. You keep going and you fall down on your path of cultivation. You get up and you continue. But as a practitioner, you hone your skills of working to observe and diagnose and see the signs of nature. And that is that magnificent map that the ancient Chinese have given us. They they identified, just like the Egyptians, 12 forces of nature that are active at 12 nodal times that we call the 12 months. Uh, During those times, we see 12 different constellations in the sky. And uh, those, from a Chinese perspective, they project onto 12 territories on the earth, uh, which are traversed by 12 sacred rivers. And they then are being reflected, these forces, in what the Chinese call the 12 meridian systems in the human body. And those have together 360 acupuncture points which reflect the 360 degrees of the circle. And so those are the things like yin-yang, the five elements, the bagua, those are all elements of symbol science that help us observe and read and categorize the science that nature and the bodies our patients are giving us. And that is a cultivation in its own right, to be able to to read and observe nature the right way. And part of that nature, you're saying, is the body of the patient, right? So that the signs that you see, the symbols, or the symptoms that you see in the patient are actually part of this map. You see if somebody has a headache, if somebody has a flush, if somebody has 
uh, a rash or a tumor, those things, are you saying those are actually part of the landscape of the physical body that you can read and know what is the underlying imbalance and give you a, a direction of how to treat it? The body has a map of how it's supposed to look like when it's healthy. Uh, the the Huangdi the Neijing, the first, uh, could call it a Bible of Chinese medicine, the first classic says you're supposed to look red like the feathers on this kind of a bird, etc. But when the red is a different kind of color, uh, then there, you can read that there is an issue. So there is a health, uh, a map of what a healthy body is supposed to look like, to smell like, uh, etc., and and be shaped like. And there is a map of what an unhealthy body is supposed to look like. Great. So in future shows. We're going to actually explore what this map is in more detail and bring it down to very practical terms for those of you who maybe don't study ancient medicine but really want to know how the wisdom that comes from that medicine can really benefit you in your day-to-day lives. Well, we've reached the end of our time today. Heiner, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much. I always enjoy talking about the topic of ancient medical traditions. Dr. Heiner Fruhoff is an international expert in classical Chinese medicine, and he's the founder of the School of Classical Chinese Medicine at the National College of Natural Medicine, America's oldest institution for the study of natural health care systems. For more information about NCNM, go to ncnm.edu, and you can go to Heiner's website for more information on the ancient medicine, classicalchinesemedicine.org. This is Heiner Fruhoff. And I'm Lori Regan. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another episode of True Nature Radio.